This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Padma Kaimal. She is at the Department of Art and Art History at Colgate University, um, and we'll be speaking about uh, a fascinating new work of hers called... Um, Opening uh, Kailasanata, uh, the temples in Kanchipuram revealed in time and space. Padma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, it's a pleasure to see you. And unlike the vast majority of podcast guests, I mean, that may change because the, the American Academy of Religion is coming up soon. Unlike the vast majority of podcast guests, we've met in person just a few weeks ago, about a month ago at, at Colgate University, haven't we? Yes, we have. We shared a meal. Yeah, we shared a meal. Uh, we probably bumped into each other about 17 times at airports. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. For those listening. At the same conference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, um, uh, Colgate University, their uh, their chapel house was kind enough to invite me out to do some talks. And it was so fascinating and so enriching. Uh, great student body there. But it was one of the few places that wanted the entire gamut from me. They were academic talks, you know, um, um, undergrad guest lecturing, and then... Uh, public talk and then you know uh, um, a guided meditation for uh, the more spiritual crowd there so it was a fascinating fulfilling experience where we got to meet we had a meal and then we both happened to be i believe on the same flight off to madison wisconsin for for the annual conference on south asia so that's great so uh yeah fantastic faculty out there um your book okay so so tell us about the genesis tell us about the backstory how did you get how did this rope you in (laughs) Ah, yes Ah, that's a nice that's a nice question so I was I went to this temple this one temple in Kanchipuram in South India when I was doing my dissertation work in 1984-85 and I went there because I was working on portraiture and I thought, and, and some uh, sources had said that the some of the figures carved into the temple were portraits of Pallava kings. And I thought, let's go check that out. So I went to the temple expecting to look at a few sculptures. And then as soon as I entered, 
I had everybody the same experience everybody else does, which is that I was suddenly overwhelmed by gorgeous, elaborate, over just intense amounts of sculpture and a glorious architectural spire and uh, a beautiful courtyard, a peacefulness because the whole the whole courtyard is enclosed with a maybe 15 foot high surround that is itself embedded with tiny, tiny temples all around the interior surface. So it, it was a suddenly, I was suddenly in this world apart and that was gorgeous. And, and I had thought I was going to spend an hour or two at the site and I spent the entire morning and then I had to go back and I just kept returning to it. And then I went home and did my work on portraiture and wrote some other scholarship, but this stayed in my mind. I just couldn't, I couldn't get over the complexity of it and the way that it presented itself to me as a puzzle. I love puzzles. And I felt like this is this is a puzzle. Some really brilliant people made this, made put these pieces together and they did it very carefully. And I would love to figure out what that is. I have I, a dear friend of mine, Dennis Hudson, who's a scholar in South Asian religions at Smith College, was working on his book on the Vaikuntha Perumal temple, which is just opposite the Kailasvanatha in the same city. And in Dennis's formulation, it was built to have a dialogue with the Kailasvanatha temple 50 years later. So Dennis, I was listening to Dennis's work at conferences and, and I said, Dennis, you know, we have to do this for the Kailasvanatha too. And we started out collaborating. We gave joint papers at a conference and then Dennis got sick and uh, ultimately he succumbed to cancer. And it became clear that if I was gonna continue this, I'd have to figure out a way to do it without him. But I was so lucky that I got to start the project with him and he had some excellent questions and insights that, that really, really got me going. So then I started thinking about this monument in earnest in the late 90s. And um, then another that I realized, I really am so overwhelmed here by the number of goddesses. I have to do a few years of reading about goddess worship because I don't feel like I really have any idea what that was in eighth century South India. And the more I read about that, the more I got distracted by, well, I didn't get distracted, but there was another project that bubbled up. I had to really understand this set of goddess images that were traced to the same city, to Kanchi, a couple hundred years later, ninth or 10th century, this group of large yogini goddesses. And I said, well, okay, if yoginis were that important in Kanchi in the ninth or 10th century, I need to understand that. And then I can understand what role goddesses may have played a couple of centuries earlier at the Kailasanatha. So I got distracted for 
about 10 years and went off and did the Yogini project. And then I was just waiting to come back to this. And I kept circling around it and circling around it and visiting it and visiting it and thinking, oh, I could write, I, I, I'd outline the book one way and then I'd outline the book another way. And I can't tell you how many tables of contents I generated around this project. And then I was, I met some colleagues uh, who were French scholars based at uh, Pondicherry, which is not far away from Kanchipuram. And they were fascinated with the Pallavas and they had written some really exciting stuff about their monuments. And our mutual friend, Leslie Orr at Concordia University in Montreal introduced us. And as soon as I started working with them and their deep knowledge about the way inscriptions work on the monument and about what goddesses could have meant to the Pallavas, these folks are Charlotte Schmidt, Emmanuel Francis and Valérie Gillet. And once I started working with them and the, I could be in conversation with people and we could like walk around the monument together and, and analyze, analyze, then the puzzle started to fit. And then I could write the book. Uh, so many fascinating threads. Uh, it, the idea of um, of, of the, the, the space, uh, the temple uh, um, uh, presenting one with a puzzle to be solved uh, or at least engaged you know that so resonates uh, it, it that that feels very similar to how Puranic uh, and epic texts sort of strike me that there's 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 a structure there there's a, there's a method in the madness there's there's something that's being um, communicated to us somehow so this puzzle then is the book about the puzzle is the book a solution to the puzzle what's the central thrust of your book yes the book is about the puzzle the book is about um so so my approach to to looking at a monument like this it's you know over a thousand years old uh from a very different culture that is the, the past is another culture, as we often say. And this is a really distant from me in time and space. My wonderful Indian family has no more connection to this monument than I do. And, and so how, the way I try to understand visual and physical form is to look for patterns. What? Where are the repeats? Where are the... Yeah, where are the rhythms? And yes, words are really useful, really important. There are words on this, these buildings. There are some words that have been written about them, but almost none during the Pallava time. So it's a few words on the buildings, but then it's sculptures and it's towers and it's spaces and it's shadows and blinding light. And how do you how do you start to see those snapping into patterns? And then how, what could those patterns mean? To step back from the patterns. So starting with the physical and the visual, and then, then backing up wider angle, thinking about the verbal. How might the verbal help us understand the physical? And then, then yes, the puzzle. The the key to the puzzle, the is actually the piranhas. I'm glad you mentioned those. So but I hear. In, <laughs> in my final chapter, 
I engaged the really gorgeous sculptural program around the tall tower at the heart of the monument. And this sculptural program is a series of reliefs of Shiva or the goddess or Vishnu, uh, Ganapati, act sitting or acting in Puranic stories. Running underneath these gorgeous sculptures is an also gorgeous line of text, a single line of Sanskrit written in really elegant Grantha letters that is a 12-verse elliptical mysterious poem about the Pallava king who had this, this tower built. And when I walked around this monument with Emmanuel Francis, I had him help me understand at exactly what letter the inscriptions would break at each corner in the building every time it bent around a projecting facet. At what word was it bending or in the middle of what word was it bending? And I, that allowed me to map out a correspondence between the texts and the images that was, again, very elegant and mysterious and elliptical, but it, it became clear that there was a pattern. There was something connecting them. The text is talking about the king in the contemporary times. The images above are talking about the gods long ago in Puranic times, but they would, they would say both talk about destroying monsters at the same place in the monument, right above the text about destroying monsters, you see Shiva destroy a monster. And a bunch of other little like sutures that were, made it clear to me there's a connection here. And then puzzled over that for a long time until I came across the work of Dawood Ali, who talks about kingship in all different kinds of texts in South Asian history and meta pattern that he finds across these texts. And, you know, so we're looking at Puranas, we're looking at royal inscriptions, we're looking at uh, praise poems from, from royal courts, we're looking at devotional literature. He looks at everything and, and epics, of course, too. And the theme that he finds throughout is a belief that the king or kings are on earth to continue the heroic work of the gods. So what the gods did in Puranic times, kings of, the, of their present time were endeavoring to continue. So protection, um, lineage, producing lineage, um, keeping down the, the, the competitors, um, consorting with beautiful women, all of these actions that are so important for the gods to be doing in Puranic times, king, the king is trying is endeavoring to do himself. So the inscription leads you around these Puranic stories and makes a visual connection between what the god is doing up above and what the king is doing in the inscription. That's so very deeply resonant 
both as you know a podcast host in Hindu studies, uh, Indian religions, and and, and sort of beholding um, the the intricate interplay between textual traditions and lived traditions and material culture and and uh, yeah and, and even uh, even what what we can. Um, infer that might have been preserved in oral memory that uh, such that we need to now figure out as scholars how to make sense of this i mean the interplay is 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 is, is lovely and and um and also this this real interest in in, in kanchi and, and and there seems to be a number of studies uh, currently that are looking at this the 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 temples in this amazing city and how they're structured um but also in particular it just so happens that um my my primary work, my, my my doctoral dissertation, the first book, and, and pretty much the second book, most of the second book focused on the Devi Mahatmya. And one of the things I show um, uh, through the narrative structure of the text, looking at the structure of the text and the ring composition, almost as if it was sort of a temple with a, a central episode and then sort of flanking episodes, is that um, um, sovereignty. Sovereignty is central to the text, both thematically and structurally. And um, um, the, 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 the goddess is an analog for the king on the, the, on the you know so tele, so so terrestrial and celestial spheres sort of mirror each other and and so it's about a celebration of this this core um uh, important dharma of um preserving the world and so in the end the king gets the king gets um his kingdom back and he gets promoted to be a manu and the merchant gets moksha and and, and one of the major interventions of of, of the work that i've done is to say look it's not that the king is not wise enough uh, to, to want moksha and that, that he's subordinate to the merchant who's seeking moksha. It's actually somewhat subversively, the merchant is subordinated to the king who wants really what the goddess wants, which is the preservation of this realm. So, you know, had I encountered this, I certainly would have um, had this work been out at the time I was dissertating, I certainly would have included a footnote or a paragraph. Could you tell us a little bit, just for my selfish purposes, if nothing else, about the role uh, of the Devi Mahatma that you've encountered in this temple? I would be delighted. So the, the Devi Mahatmya is embedded uh, in reliefs in three different ways at the monument. And um, and it did, it took me an embarrassing amount of time to realize that that the goddess herself, the embodiment of triumph, the goddess of the Devi Mahatmya, is in fact one of the emblematic royal figures on that monument. That she's as much a stand-in or a, 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 a focus of emulation for the king as any of the figures of Shiva. And she is she is especially resplendent in these reliefs where she's standing with one of her feet resting on her lion's shoulder and all of her are her weapons arrayed around her in a in a beautiful oval and and just confident and relaxed as can be, just kind of one elbow leaning on her on her thigh like, yeah. Yeah, I did that. I I dispatched all those guys. It was it's play. It's play for it's her. It's <laughs> play. Bring it on. Yeah, she's spectacular. And then there are two other small reliefs that tell stories from within the Devi Mahatmya. One is the um, her pursuit of uh, Shumba or Nishumba, one of those two brothers. And then there's one where she's appearing 
not really, she's disembodied as yoga nidra and she is the sleep of Vishnu. So we see Vishnu reclining and Madhu and Kaitaba, the two demonic forces who are coming to destroy the world while Vishnu sleeps. But she is the one who galvanizes Vishnu's weapons into personifications who then accost Madhu and Kaitaba and dispose of them. So we have her in those three different forms and if we're walking in a clockwise way around the monument in normal productiona as all householders, people in the householder phase of life, like the king in Devi Matmya would do, the, we would see those two small episodes first. And then at the end, we see her as a large figure with the weapons, with her foot resting on the lion and no demons. And there's been a lot of ink spilled in the scholarly world about why there's no Mahisha. Why is there no buffalo-headed demon that the goddess kills in a climactic, perhaps you would say the central episode of the Devi Mahatmya? That's such a common architect, uh, um, sculptural theme. Why isn't that? Why? Where's the demon? Where's Where's Mahisha? My my. My way of solving that is to say, this is actually the last hymn of the Devi Mahatmya, where she transcends time. She transcends episodes. Shakradi Stuti. No, sorry, the um, Narani Stuti. The, the, the hymn of chapter 11. Thank you. Yes. So here, she isn't embedded in any narrative. She has transcended narrative, and she is simply an embodiment of Shakti, of triumph, a resplendent and outside of time. So she doesn't, so uh, putting a Mahisha in there would, would limit her. It would anchor her to that one story. And here she's beyond that. She's done. This isn't the moment. Uh, this isn't the moment of slaughter, the moment of, uh, this is, she's done. The demons are destroyed, right? Um, yes. So so remind me again, the Yoga Nidra um, uh, vignette is the first one that we see visually, correct? No, actually, it would be one, the second. second. So and the first one was? Shumba, Nishumba. I yes. think she's got, I think it's Nishumba because there's this ropey, bouncy thing in her on her head that I think are the entrails of Shumba that she wraps in her hair before she chases Nishumba. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Mm. Fascinating. So um, uh, let's pan out a bit. Um, tell us a bit about the structure of the book. So the structure of the book is each chapter is a different pattern that I see and it, they're spatial patterns. So we start out thinking about the majority of the sculptures. Majority of the sculptures either face north or face south. And 
there's a very strong pattern amongst those figures and that there are almost no figures that face both directions. And all of the figures that do face in a single direction have something in common with each other. All of the ones that face north are, um, let's see, are in a state of ascetic, intense power. So they're fighting demons, they are embodying triumph, this gorgeous goddess faces north. They are um, locked in intense meditation and destroying other, controlling others and themselves. They are single figures in the center of a composition. They are accompanied by only other figures of the same sex. And they interact with those other figures through domination, if they're the god. If, uh, so domination and subordination. Whereas all the figures facing south are in some kind of interaction that happens uh, not quite equally, but almost equally. The two figures on either side of a composition and the center of the composition is left open as a space of interaction. And these figures are interacting in various ways that signal forms of continuity. So the um, Shiva is flirting with the goddess or he's flirting with the wives of the, the sages in the pine forest. Shiva is teaching others in his lineage like a guru and he's being followed by princes and sages and wild animals or he is teaching Brahma and Vishnu that he is superior to them using the Lingod Bhava story where Vishnu where Shiva appears in an eternal flaming pillar or Linga and neither Vishnu nor Brahma can find the top or the bottom of the flaming linga, and they therefore realize that Shiva is, is much bigger than they are, than beyond their, their ability to encompass or comprehend. So south-facing images are about continuity, nurture, uh, interaction, and the kinds of continuity that are, are about generations and generations of humans or the uh, giving birth to each other or gurus teaching students, teaching students, teaching students. Whereas those facing north are in a kind of ascetic resplendence and they embody a, that form of power that the body can, can control when one is ascetic. Fascinating. So, so that's that's the chapter. That's one pattern, and mm. it's on all of the buildings. It, it 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 dictates the sculptures on all of the buildings, and the next chapter is about sculptures that face east and west, and those sculptures tell the story of lineage continuity in Shiva's family and in the royal family, how fathers beget sons with 
how Shiva and the goddess have baby Skanda and Skanda grows up and he gets married and he ha- and, and so this is sense of con- continual regeneration that produces a great long lineage. Then there are frequent parallels in the east-west facing images between Shiva's family and the Pallava family. But we see a really interesting shift that nobody is nobody compares themselves or their king. Uh, let's just, nobody compares themselves to Shiva. Kings are compared to, to Skanda and their, their departed fathers are Shiva. So there's a, and then, then when Askanda grows up and passes on the kingdom to his son, his son makes his father into a Shiva and the son becomes the new Skanda. So we see this sense of, of patterns repeating, repeating, repeating in this endless cycle to convey that the Pallava lineage would continue forever. Although, of course, it did exactly the reverse. The kings engaged with this monument of the last kings of their branch of the Pallava family. That's a really fascinating motif of, of invoking the symbology of Skanda versus Shiva. You know, the, the, the general of the, of the army of the gods, you know, virile, you know, Rajas, you know, this is the current king. And then Shiva is either the god of destruction, a slash transformation, or an ascetic, or, you know, he's he's left the scene, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah, there you go. He's, you he, have the, he's the in the historic souls. time. He's yeah. in his historic Puranic time. And Skanda is right here. Skanda is right here on earth, and he is your king. It's fascinating. Um, what um, I mean, clearly you've you've been you've been fascinated by this this temple for a long time, and so what has maybe shifted for you in doing this work in your perspective, or was there anything that particularly surprised you, or you know, what's um, without asking too leading a question, you know, what's what stayed with you about this puzzle or, what, or the way you've solved it? So. What really stays with me is what is now in the last chapter, where I'm trying to figure out why are the sculptures and the text wrapping around it connected? What's the point? What what is the story being told here? And also, why is this text, it's a single line of text that, so you, in order to read it, you have to follow it. Why is it wrapping around the monument in a counterclockwise direction? because we're not supposed to walk that way, are we? And when we do that, people at the, uh, other people at the monument get very upset. If you go to a Hindu temple now with your family, everybody insists you have to walk in a clockwise direction. So that part really stayed with me. And I would give lectures at workshops and take my colleagues around talking about what the monument, what this inscription said. And then the devout Hindus in the group would then have to retrace our steps. They have to reverse our steps and go around the monument three or five or seven times in a clockwise direction because just walking counterclockwise felt so wrong to them. Inauspicious. Yes, but what does inauspicious mean, right? It's, it's, I feel like inauspicious is a very poor English word to do the work. What is it? What well, it doesn't mean just unlucky. It it means it means the it's it's not about polarity. It's not like good and bad. It's a it's about 
the kind of ascetic energy that we see in the figures who face north. It's about a kind of power that is undoing, that is ending things, that is aiming towards moksha, transcendence, and along the way to that, death. The end of this present form one happens to be in. And then you can understand why your, you know, your auntie does not want you walking that direction. But that it's that very movement that is so powerful and in the building's plans. And so I, I then I step back and I realize chapter chapter four is about how the entire monument is set up to equally encourage clockwise and counterclockwise movement and to keep those two forms of movement in a kind of dialogue with each other because the Pallava king wants to embody both kinds of energy. He wants to be both a magically powerful ascetic and a virile king of this world. And so, you know, he could walk either way, depending on where he is that day. But we know from the inscription that was counterclockwise that he took as he took initiation into a tantric sect. So that's, he was engaging. That's exactly. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about the presence of tantra and tantric traditions, where, where what may be considered inauspicious from an orthodox perspective might be precisely what is required for yielding uh, the utmost power or or siddhi or goal. And so, oh, I'm so glad that's where your brain went with it. That's exactly what well, I was hoping was well, true. And, and, but all, but also, and and I don't, you know, clearly, I don't have the nuts and bolts. I don't have your your fine training. Uh, I know very little about this other than what I read uh, for the podcast. But to my mind, it really feels to me like, you know, for example, the Devi Mahatmya. I mean. They, they, the, the, this, you, the only way to see it in order is if you go counterclockwise, but you see it, the episodes backwards if you go clockwise. You know, does that bespeak, you know, it could be my, my either scholarly or mythic imagination at work, but does that bespeak a tantric tradition, a veneration for the Devi, where that from the perspective of tantra, do you rightly see the order of the Devi Mahatmya, pun intended? Um, and the other, the other, the other idea that comes to mind, uh, the other idea that comes to mind is, in some ways, uh, um, is the temple not? Uh, isn't it not reminiscent of the churning of the ocean of the devas and the asuras? And they're moving. Ah, in, they're moving. They're moving in opposite directions, and they have to ah. clockwise and counterclockwise, clockwise and counterclockwise. And somehow the temple has the wisdom to incorporate the totality of that philosophically, but probably also because the uh, tantra was so in vogue that they were aware that there were orthodox traditions and heterodox traditions, and uh, yeah. from a tantric perspective, so. Anyhow, enough of my uh, random conjecture for one day. <laughs> no, I think that's a lovely suggestion. I like that parallel. And we do see several places on the monument where we have this interesting kind of slippage between uh, Shiva and Vaishnava, between something that Shiva is doing in on the monument and something that Vishnu does in the text. So there there's and again I, I go to Dawood Ali Dawood Ali's work who says and where he says that the that even kings whose Ishta Devata whose primary devotion is to Shiva understand themselves to be Vishnu's in the way that they're skandhas that in this world they act like Vishnu even though 
Shiva is their their favorite deity. So and we see this place on the monument where the inscription is talking, clearly alluding to Vishnu rescuing Bhudevi from the bottom of the ocean. And the text above shows Shiva doing something. Sorry, the image above shows Shiva doing something comparable. That makes so much sense to me insofar as the 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 the, the king um the king is meant to do the work of preservation, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Which is the work which then Vishnu and the goddess both bar none, their their roles are roles of preservation. And there's a and there's a meta level of preservation that the inscription claims for the king here. It's not just that he's keeping his his kingdom okay. It's that by reuniting all the kingdoms of the world, he has ended the Kali Yuga and brought us full cycle into a new Krita Yuga, a new utopic time of unity and harmony and people living forever and everything being wonderful. So he has actually controlled time. He's boom, ended an eon. Fascinating. Um, was there, um, okay, well, let me ask you this question that I almost always ask on the podcast. What sorts of readers, scholars, you know, uh, what interests would this book serve? You know, who might most be interested in this book? Well, I always try to write for my mom. I always aim my prose at really smart, interested people who haven't read anything that I've read. So, and 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 my mom liked the book, so I felt like I might be there. I might be there. So my mother is a very very smart woman who grew up in the forties and fifties, and you know went first in her generation to go to college. And what was she told to major in? Home economics. But she has this brain for literature and visual arts, and she spent her whole life like filling in all of that stuff that she needed. And and so she she said, yeah, I get this book. I like this book. So that so my, I do love to write for a, a a general curious person. It I, I but specifically who am I look, talking to here? I'm talking to folks like you, people who understand South Asian religion, I, and I hope more ways than I do. And and you'll take this and you'll do something with it that that I wouldn't be able to do. I'm also, of course, aiming at um, the the community of art historians who study temples and encouraging all my colleagues to to see these monuments in kind of dynamic ways so that we're constantly engaging with the physicality of the thing. A building isn't a book. So we're not about where are we going to find the manuscripts that would explain this temple to us. If people wanted to write books, they wrote books. If they built a temple, it's because a temple can do things a book doesn't do. It's much harder to build a temple than it is to write a book. I, I can say that because I've written a couple books and they were hard, but building a temple would be much more difficult indeed. So, so I'm I'm speaking to art historians for sure. Those are those are my people, that's my inside community. But I, I do hope people who study the who study religion and who and anybody who just wants to think about how a building could could carry meaning 
could transform you will find it interesting. Fantastic. Um, well, um, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Raj. It's just a joy to talk about it and especially to talk about it with someone who understands this stuff so well. Or at least pretends to, but you're welcome. <laughs> 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 Shh, don't tell my listeners. Uh, <laughs> right, for those of you listening, um, we've been speaking uh, with uh, Dr. Padma Kaimal on fascinating new publication called Opening Karnasanata, The Temple in Kanchipuram Revealed in Time and Space. Uh, keep all, keep listening, um, keep reading, and keep contemplating the interplay between temples and texts. Take care.